want you to listen. Then what? Share it. The Melbourne Youth and Social Workers Group and the Knowledge on Tick podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Boonarong and Wurundjeri people, their elders past and present. We would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the land, her children and our families. We would like all of us to show respect for each other, Mother Nature and the creatures on the land and the sea. Hey everyone, the Melbourne Youth and Social Work Facebook group would like to welcome you to the Knowledge on Tick podcast. We are Josh and Nat and we will be your co-hosts for the potty. Knowledge on Tick is a podcast offering real-life conversations and insights every week with workers in the field covering a range of topics surrounding the youth and social work world. We are so grateful to have you here and happy listening. All right, welcome back to another episode of Knowledge on Tick. I'm Josh. And I'm Nat. And this week we're joined by Vanessa. Hello. 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 I'm Vanessa. I'm a nurse and I work in a home-based withdrawal role, which is a role um, in opposition to residential withdrawal. So the government funds these positions so that people can reduce their substance use in the community, in their home, in their Eucharist session. Mm. Which is a super cool role that not many people would know about because when you think about someone ceasing substance use or having a circuit breaker or whatever it might be, you think of sending them to a detox or a rehab where they're yep. in-house staff yep. 24-7. So it's a, it's interesting because I think it's like the lesser known about mm. program, but there's a, a number of you out there. It's not. So in I guess that drug and alcohol services are poorly publicised and understood, I think, mm. overall. In fact, every health region in in Victoria, I'm obviously going to speak of that. So every region has an addiction medicine specialist unit, and associated with that are home-based withdrawal nurses. There's a group of us who meet every couple of months, so it's a statewide nurses meeting. But that is directed at the adult sector. So. Mm. Um, so there are nurses and there are adult, adult sector nurses. The role in our organisation is quite specific for youth mm. and it's an incredibly specialist sort of role. No one else is doing this with youth. And I think one of the really good things about it is that there's a lot of flexibility to go out and see young people and connect with them in their own environment mm. so that one can be relevant. Yeah. Um, so personally, I think it's the best job that I have ever done in my whole life. I would have never imagined how wonderful it was. I pinch myself <laughs> and sometimes my friends say to me, I can't believe you get paid to tell people things. And I think, yes, <laughs> nobody listens to me at home. <laughs> but I actually go out and speak to other people and give young people advice that my own children wouldn't listen to. 
So it's pretty wonderful. But the other part about it is that it's not just about drugs and alcohol. It's about holistic care. It's about actually talking to young people and assessing the status of their health and giving them advice about general health, linking them up with ordinary services, general health services, mm. um, specialist health services, like specialist clinics that the acute the health services run, getting them dental, optometry, all of those sorts of things. Um, make sure their immunization's up to date, getting them contraception, assisting them with pregnancy and termination, and um, just all those sort of, and then mental health, mm. so mental health services, getting them psychologists, counselling, psychiatrists, and then more specifically, drug and alcohol specific services, which revolve around harm minimisation, education on how to reduce from a substance at home, what to expect, how to manage the symptoms, and also linking people up with opioid replacement therapy, so like Suboxone mm. and um, Methadone, which is less frequently used, and that sort of stuff. So it's really fantastic. It's just got so much in it. At one point, there was a lot of stuff we did on refugee health because we had obviously different groups of young people from different countries who had very specific needs. So African countries where there were particular infections mm. and um, types of illnesses and deficits in immunization, a lot of people with hepatitis. So getting them diagnosed, accessing treatment through the general health services, that sort of stuff. So huge scope for mm. all sorts of things, basically. Yeah. So it's a marvellous world. Cool. Heaps mm -hmm. in there that we can break down and... Mm -hmm. Um, but we do start off with our five questions. Um, we do. The first one is, what was your first ever job? Oh, my first ever job was as a nurse. Oh, really? So <laughs> I, I left, when I finished HSC, which it was in the olden days, mm. at nursing was in hospitals. I went straight into the Royal Melbourne to commence what really was like an apprenticeship. So you did three months in school and then you rotated onto the ward and then basically you worked while you studied um, until you graduated after three years and then I worked at the Royal Melbourne for 27 years. Wow. wow. And I worked all over the place in the hospital Yeah. and pretty much only haven't done head and neck and plastics and orthopaedics which I hate. <laughs> But I have done all sorts, all of the other specialities and worked in ICU and spent many, many months in um, emergency. When I left, I was the manager of the trauma ward, specialist medical, specialist surgical. And we had a throughput of 14 a day. So that was, we'd have wow. 14 cases from ICU or from theatre. And we were discharged. That we were so busy. We had eight H and M beds, which are gastrointestinal patients who are bleeding out, who've drunk alcohol and are bleeding out. And then we had really big vascular patients who'd had surgery to the aorta and stuff like that. Mm. So, but it was a really high, like that's 
that's how it was from the time I worked there because it was really a busy hospital. And in yeah. those days, before the Alfred was was given that, um, so the Alfred and the Royal Melbourne always competed. They got all the road traumas. They were split between them, mm. and um, and then they tended to separate and have like heart surgeries in one place, or you know, one hospital would specialize. But in the olden days, they just got sent to the, each of the hospitals and. And it really was full of road traumas wow. when I started. So, yeah, that was my first job. Started hmm. off strong. Mm. There's so, so many things I want to ask, but I'll, I'll come back to them. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's you. If you were a WWE wrestler. <laughs> yeah, I've struggled with this question. <laughs> yeah. So far, you're probably the least likely guest to be a WWE wrestler, which is... um. Backhanded compliment, I think. Um, what would what would be your walkout song? <laughs> well, this has been a troubling question. I've given this some thought because I actually can't. All the songs that I like would be grossly inappropriate, <laughs> but I <laughs> because I don't know anything. I don't. I can't think of anything really. Sure. So it was a toss up between. Stevie Wonder's Master Blaster Jam. That's a yes. That's a good one. That's a really good one. Because most of the songs I like are like Black Lives Matter songs from mm. the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. And so those songs were relevant then as mm. they are now. Now. Mm. The other song that I really love is Will Downing's Come Together as One, and I don't know if you know yeah. that song. It's that a beautiful, song. you know, song. But I love Stevie Wonder and Black Singers. I guess so. Mm. Those would be my two. Yeah, uh, Master Blast. That's an awesome. It's a fabulous yeah, song. That's a really it? good song. Yeah, but all of them refer to freedom in Africa and yeah. that sort of stuff. So. Is that something that resonates with you? Well, like, I guess it resonates. Equity resonates with me, mm. and um, and obviously not just black people. I'd say all people, equity mm. for all. I mean, it's sort of. Slightly a bit more nuanced now, isn't it? Because we've got people who are trans and all sorts of other ways that people identify, not just in terms of colour. Mm. So I guess all of those things are relevant. Yeah. yeah. And equity when you boil down to all of them at their core. Yeah. Absolutely. So mm. And I think that that is a fundamental thing <clears throat> for me as a nurse. Um, equity, I think, is... I always worked in the public... Well, I didn't actually. That's a lie. I mostly worked in the public sector. I had a small stint at working at a private hospital. Mm. And I was reasonably prejudiced there because everyone, even though they were struggling, had plenty of money mm. so they could access health care. And so I struggled to work there because I really wanted to work where I could make a difference. Mm. And in the public sector, like I really felt that whatever people didn't have outside, when they came in, they would get, yeah, like, unrivaled care. Like, everyone would be dealt the same. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. So, not that I don't think that people who are wealthy have a right to happiness, but mm. I think it just evens the odds mm. of working with people who don't. Mm. That's the only, that's the way I look at it. Because yeah. all I can do even for the clients that I work with now, is to use what I know to get them what they couldn't get. Yeah. And I believe very strongly in advocacy. So I will always speak out and ask for what. I wouldn't necessarily ask for myself, but mm. I would ask for them. 
because I think that they have so much disadvantage mm. just to make the playing field. And I think I can get them things like um, I can get them lots of things just because I'm bold enough to make the request mm. sometimes. That's mm. all it is. I believe that. <laughs> well, that's all I can do, isn't it? Mm. Like that's all I can do is to ask. Yeah. So I try not to be afraid to ask because sometimes it's intimidating to ask people like doctors and stuff who yeah. have got quite a privileged opinion of themselves. Not that I share that, but mm. I find it's still a challenge just to say to them sometimes because they can be quite confronted by you asking them things. Yeah, well, it's not. it wouldn't be normal that people would ask. Not at all. It would, they'd just take the response or they'd take the answer. Mm. So for a lot of them to be sort of met with another question, yeah. it would be a level of shocking for them. Like, oh, mm. that doesn't normally happen. Especially from your experience in mm. nursing too, yeah. that... I think like if I was to be present at a hospital seeing a doctor and the doctor said whatever they had said and I wouldn't necessarily have the well, you wouldn't know. experience That's right. to, mm. to challenge that or yeah. to ask a particular question, yeah. whether it's about a medication or a treatment, yeah. where that's a huge benefit that you would have over like uh, a, a, other people. There's a marginal benefit, yes, mm. because obviously to operate with knowledge in the system makes it easier. I mean, at a basic level, I think that there shouldn't be any reason why anyone couldn't ask because because I think that all of us are equal. Like, mm. I don't genuinely believe that people are better for whatever they do. I don't regard that as a thing that I pay attention to. I do yeah. not have respect for people. I do not. So I don't think because you're a politician or you're the king like, I don't give a shit about the law, I might say that. Um, and I don't see why we venerate judges or mm. anyone, frankly. Like, I don't think that by dint of your position that mm. you are automatically deferred to. That's bullshit. Mm. Yeah. So if you want respect, then you demonstrate your commitment to other people and your integrity. And by all means, I have respect for you. So if you're a, any human being operating in the world, if you are straight up and direct with someone, there's nothing wrong with saying, this is not my expert field, can you tell me why I would need to do this? I have friends who are carpenters and other things, and I admire the work that they do, and I think, oh, how do you build a house? Like, yeah. I'm totally impressed by them. Mm. And I think, so I'm similarly impressed by anybody who has any skill, playing a guitar, whatever it mm. might be. That's right my skill is no better than your skill. Mm. I really believe that. Yeah. So I have no regard for people seeming, you know. Yeah, yeah like purely just on their status. I don't believe in status. It's mm. a crock of shit. There's no real... <laughs> status is not even a thing. I mean, I don't understand why we venerate it. I really challenge that as a thing. Mm. Mm. No, no, I hear that. I think the, like one, I guess yeah, we've got questions to go, but I, I, I do understand where you're coming from. And for me, um, what bugs me is, and it's a big topic and I don't mean to or want to get down that rabbit hole, but like mm. the police, yeah. like they'll do a course yeah. and then all of a sudden it's like they've got a badge and then it's, and then everyone's like, oh, like fear the police or mm, mm. like treat them respect with respect, the police, respect yeah. the police. Like there's mm. a lot of police that I respect and there's a lot of just people I respect in general. Mm. But this it's like quite quickly all of a sudden there's they get they get given a lot of responsibility and people are, are not fearful but I guess um like nervous or, or 
or unsure about challenging yeah. their opinion or what they've got to say, they just accept it because they're a yeah. police officer. Mm. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, you are a police officer, but you've only been in a job for like six months. Yeah, exactly. Like, right. how do we, you know, and but you, it's very difficult to push past that boundary. Mm. So I, I think yeah. also how you can get really toxic work environments. You know, that not just the police, but, you know, you use sure. police as an example, so we'll run with it. You know, you got might have a 21-year-old person with, you know, their own sort of battle, internal battle with their own sort of values and beliefs and sense of identity, and then you, you put them in this position where they have all this power all of a sudden, you yeah. know, and then sometimes yeah. we, we do get, you know, toxic workers, let's say, that have um, maybe shouldn't have been given so much power, maybe should have gone out and learnt some things and gained more experience yeah. around situations and... You know, because if I think of the cops that I deal with at work in my job, that I go, fuck, I love that cop. He's a really good dude. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, she's a bloody legend. Give her a call. She'll help you out. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with them being a police. And I probably couldn't even tell you if they're a no. detective, senior constable, or, you know, what their sort of classification within Vicpol is. It's about them mm-hmm. as a person. Yeah, 100%. And the respect I have for them as a person. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, interesting rabbit hole yeah, around it's a big the – it is a – we could be here forever, okay. but I'll cut us off. Yeah, okay. If you could, the, the third question, Vanessa, if yep. you had to change careers, yep. what would you do? Well, if I had to change careers, which would be unlikely because I always wanted to change careers, I wanted to do fine arts and I only did nursing because I hated my mother and I couldn't stand living at home and it was the only way I could leave home and be independent. So that's why I did nursing. I had no other interest. And it just actually changed my life. Mm. Consequently, I never went back to university as I had intended to do. Mm. So if I change my career, and I am still thinking about it, I will leave and do arts and pottery and painting, mm. or or else I'll go and do physics and chem. I can't decide mm. what I will do. <laughs> so totally different. But yeah, that that's what I will do. Is I will do what I originally wanted, wanted to, to do. do. Hmm. That's interesting. I love that. It's a, it's a polar like opposite as well. I think mm-hmm. when you and I did ours, we got back into this sort of thing of yeah. And then we do traineeships for young people and blah blah blah. blah. Yep. I like that yours is completely different. It's not um sort of a derivative of a different mm. line of employment to do something social work still. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, but everything is like an art form. Like one person once said to me. When I told them that that nursing was an art form too, mm. and that so all work is like art for the person who's mm. doing, doing it. it, you know, it's how you That's a really um, good point. you can be creative in that space, isn't it? Like you mm. can bring something internal to that work and mm. make it a work of art in a way. Yeah, which was an interesting way of looking at it. Mm. Yeah. That is a good way to look at it. I wondered if you'd say something like cooking or being a chef because you made a ripper curry for us a oh, couple no, of days well, before well, Christmas. Well, I cook all the time. So uh, you do, yeah, okay. but you are a very the, good cook. So but, nice. I, but I think it's about like just being in the world. Like There's mm. a lot of things that, well, I've got lots of opinions about work as well. <laughs> good, that's why we're going Because here. I think that, because I reject all sorts of values that we have as a society. I reject the idea that, we work all the time and then we don't actually have other time. So mm. I don't know why as a group that we chose to observe the five-day thing and why we allow people to push us into that space mm. when we couldn't say four days is full time mm. and we could actually have time to do other things that balance 
us out, yeah. not mm. just work things. And that's not because I don't like work, I love it. No. But also there are other things that we could do, isn't it? So yeah. I kind of like try to do all of the other things as well to mm. keep that sense, you know, of equal importance mm. of like doing gardening, cooking and stuff like that because I like doing those things. So, yeah. Yeah, other things so that, that bring balance. you joy. I think we've spoken about um, the smaller, is it the four to the three or whatever ratio? I can't remember who we were talking to Sounds like about it. Sounds like Maybe. Because he likes his numbers for he things. He does like his numbers. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting. I like the way that you put, it's not that I don't love my job because I think often people do think when you talk about having a three-day weekend hmm. or, or, you know, full-time being four days that, you know, people don't like their jobs, but people just want to live their lives as well. Well, there's other things to do, isn't it? Like, yeah. well, I'm 61, so I'm considering the last decade of work. So I will stop working when I'm 70. Mm. And and I look and I just imagine that the way that people, so the majority of people, I think, in my experience, don't like their work. They mm. hate work and they live mm. till retirement. Yeah. And to me, that seems an incredibly sad way of living because if you don't like something, then don't do it because yep. that is awful. Mm. Change what you do. But we live in this kind of construct too that we've done something. We've been to university. We've spent time and money. And so we can't change. We're just really like locked into a kind of feeling of like money and what people think. And it's all sort of bullshit. Yeah. Whereas it would make more sense to discard something that brought you unhappiness and then do something that made you happy and do it for longer, mm. doing it less often. So I would think it's better rather than retiring at 60 because lots of my friends are retiring is to work longer, fewer days yeah, and then just change the balance in your life because as you get older, you just can't do things as quickly. You can't get as many things done as you would have done when you were younger. Mm. But you do need a bit of extra time to complete tasks, sadly. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but it's true yeah so yeah. it's a matter of like thinking actually can i do this like can i do let's be practical isn't it better for me to do something less for longer yeah than like short bursts of things because mm. because then i think well there's no i mean unless that's what you want to do like if you want to chop and change mm. go for it who cares mm. you know if that's what turns you on but I don't think there's any problem in breaking your career, doing totally different things, whizzing off and being remote for a couple of, you know, years and then picking up something new. Mm. Who cares, you know? Yeah. So I think we're very fixated with the way that we conceptualise life and, you know, raising children and having a house and all this kind of stuff. And that puts pressure on people too. Because sometimes it's not really the thing that makes them happy. But they do it mm. because they think that that's what they're supposed wants to. to yeah. yeah, I think that's really wrong. Mm. I think it's important to think about for yourself what's important and then go with that mm. based on your own. That's needs. your life. Absolutely. Only you should be mm. able to make that decision mm. Mm. and not based on what you think other people think you should be doing at that stage of your life. But at any stage, it's a futile waste because mm. I think if you get to like 60 and you look back and lots of people do and they think, oh, shit, why didn't I do that? Mm. You yeah. Know? And you think, oh, my God, that must be so depressing mm. that you would get to a particular age and really regret that you hadn't done something. Mm. And it's so true. I was in the bookstore the other day. I went to the yeah. shops and was looking at some books and there was, I reckon, 15, if yeah. not more, books 
um, there was a woman that originally wrote one a couple of years ago and it was um, something to do with, you know, not missing out on things in life. I can't remember what the book's called, but she yeah. goes, she went to an aged care home and she got sort of the 10 biggest things that people said to, um, that people who were retired yes, and in aged care homes yeah. to, they yeah. wish they paid more attention to or they yeah. wish they invested more time yeah. into. Yeah. And now there's like a whole series of different books That's pretty amazing, much with the same message yeah. outlining, you know, don't sweat the fucking small stuff and don't. That's right. Yeah. Make sure you're enjoying life because you'll get to, to our age and be like, oh, fuck, I wish I stopped and smelt the roses a That's little bit right. more. That's right. Yeah. Which are pretty, I guess, things that people do take for granted when you're in the rat race or, you know, monkey well, brain I think, and you're not. I think it actually means more than actually the small things mm. is actually reconfiguring your concept of life because... It's actually making the small things the big things and making the rat race the small things. That's what I really think. Yeah. Because if you look at the way the world is, society is meant to provide things to support one another. So mm. all the structures that we have are, are supposed to be for the benefit of the community, right? So laws, all of those things, if they're not actually making life better, then why are we subscribing to them? It's mm. my question. And that is my question about religion and all rules. Mm. Because if they're actually creating more trouble for us because we have to conform to things that are incredibly difficult, irrelevant sometimes, mm. inconsequential, and sometimes actually cruel, then why do we have them? Mm. Why do we have laws that hurt young people who are homeless? Why can't they get on the train for free? Fuck. Mm. Why can't we provide that? Mm. So what are we doing? Like, why are we perpetuating things that are pointless, irrelevant, and sometimes actually cruel? Mm. And we're not thinking enough about the world that we live in. We're not thinking about it and saying, no, I don't want to do that. I reject that. Mm. And we should reject more things, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, mm. that's my... That's what I hope is that younger people will be more um, questioning and challenge things more and not accept the world in the way that, in one way, when I was young, it was like just after the 60s and everyone was, you know, thinking freely and challenging mm. everything. And I thought, oh, this will be lovely. The world will be different. But my, my brother's generation are far more conforming. They immediately got married and had bought a house. Yeah, And I thought, what the hell are you all doing? Go out and party. And they didn't. Mm. And so subsequent generations who I had hoped for in terms of being more challenging and asking for different things didn't seem to do that. Mm. So I think maybe your generation, maybe mm. younger people now will say, this is meaningless shit. Like <laughs> politicians are dickheads. I reckon it's definitely happening. I, I think, think it is. Yeah, I think. Little I think, bit by bit. I think our generation, like we're in our thirties. Mm. Hey, um, hey, hey! Don't age me. <laughs> are you? Are you thirty yet? No, I turned twenty-nine the other day. Oh, okay, sorry. Ooh. I got twelve months to go. Yeah, so you're, you know, a few years younger than me, but call us the same. Well, I think so we're probably twenty-five the same. to forty. Yeah, yeah. Like I think <laughs> we're twenty-five to thirty-five. Like Not some really of us. The 30s, yeah. 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 Some of us uh, at that point, but I reckon it's the generation under us that are mm -hmm. like they're the ones that are questioning questioning things and I think COVID and I don't want to get into a COVID conversation but I think what's been forced upon us for, from yeah. COVID with having working from home is people are realizing hang on a second I don't necessarily like you said before have to work nine to five I don't have to work in an office mm. like some of these things that we would conform to like I used to think 
and this is one example, how I could never possibly like not turn up for a meeting. Like I would have to be there in person, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like I'd have to be there in person and, and, and it would be rude for me not to be there. Mm. Or mm. if I was to call in, I was like, if I had to call beforehand to the person running the care team meeting, for example, and say, I'm not going to make it, but can you chuck me on the phone? Mm. I was like, this is so unprofessional. Mm. I can't believe I'm doing this. Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. But now it's like, hey, let's all get online. Why are we driving? And I think more and more like people are asking questions about like tiny homes as an example, like sustainable living. Like I don't need to have a mortgage. Like what's the minimum that I need? Like how can I do this more creatively? How can Mm. I do this more sustainably? Mm. I think people are pushing back against a lot of those like conforming things. I really like to see that. I think in the I think we'll see it increase more and more. People have just gone along with bullshit stuff. Yeah. And just accepted it. That's right. And it's not even good stuff. Like if Mm. it was good stuff, sure. Take it. Yeah, have it. And if it's not cruel to other people, sure, mm. go for it. But yeah. some of the stuff is so irrelevant, mm. Mm. so mm. awful. And I think, I'd be so dumb. Yeah. You know, how dumb are we? Yeah. So I hope, my hope is that, you know, future generations will be more critical mm. and all people should be knocked off the cliff. <laughs> and uh, I just can't get over how in America you've got to be 80 to get a presidential nomination. How irrelevant is that? That is so irrelevant. Like, yeah. How is the Pope getting away with being 80? That's bullshit. Get Quick, ask the next question. Ask the next question. <laughs> it's you. Don't start oh, me. All right. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. That's why I'm just I, laughing about that's the That's why I, I knew that you wanted, I knew that you'd be good fun to have on the podcast. So make your bed, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, no. Yeah, I know. Oh, um, I'm just sorry, I thought you were looking at me. I'm looking at you because... Like, oh, you're allowed to look at me. Sorry. Conversations. Inspiration. No, yes. the, so the question is, this should be good, I hope, um, is... Uh, could you tell us? Uh, could you tell us about a time at work that you've made a mistake, and what have you learnt from it? Mm. Um, and working in a hospital for thirty years, I hope well, you like. I think I think that's not the most significant thing I've learnt in life. But mm. I did make like when I was in hospital. I think when I started, we were really fearful because we were eighteen and we were left in charge of <laughs> thirty quite sick people. Like there's two of us, yeah, mm. or something really ridiculous. It was bizarre. It is bizarre, can I just say, because even when I was working at corrections at the age of 18, I used to think it was bizarre that I was case managing parolees that were so triple my age, right? Yeah. Wow. I used to think that was fucking wild. Like, how? who am I to be to be doing restorative justice with these guys? I'm fresh out of it's uni. A joke. So it's fun, but I'm not in control of someone's life, really. Like, No, so it was, it was a huge responsibility. Yeah. You can't imagine the pain and like grief that you experienced every day, yeah. feeling the magnitude of your responsibility and the magnitude of your incompetence because you knew you didn't know lots of stuff. So we were mostly in the wars. It was the, the baby nurses would be with the second year. So they'd be a, a new nurse in a second year yep. to 16 people. And there'd be at least one registered nurse. Um, and in the night, there used to be two of us baby nurses, like second years, minding 30 people and one nurse, one registered nurse that just went around and helped you give all the drugs of addiction. Mm. So, um, and then once you were trained, then you were one of the dumb bunnies who went around and did every fucking morphine <laughs> for every fucking surgical patient. Like, that's all you did, you went around all the time so 
In terms of mistakes, I think I understood quite early that I couldn't make a mistake. So I was very, I mean, I, I have made mistakes. So I would disclose them and try and rectify them. And my understanding in medical things is that it's the um, acknowledgement and quick rectification mm. that's important, even in surgery and stuff, because people make mistakes, so that's fine. We mm. accept that in risk management stuff, like so I've done quality and risk management and stuff as well. Mm. So the understanding is that that's acceptable, and but it's a quick management of it. So that was sort of, in a sense, articulated to us as well, because there was a good sense of mentoring at the same time. Even though we were quite junior, there was a good system in that hospital of mentoring with senior nurses, and they did look after us in that era. So I think I learned quite early, and it would have been something like putting up the wrong IV fluids. That's my recollection of one of the earliest wrong things that I did, that I put up the wrong IV fluid, and then I just got someone and we did it again. So what happened many years after that is they brought in, because medication errors were an issue, is that you, know, you would double check them. So mm. it wasn't necessarily legal, but the hospital brought it in as a process, and even still, I think the requirement even for di drugs of addiction is that one person gi can give it, but most hospitals have a policy where two people, so that they double check it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that sort of double checking, like we used to do, um, get like medication out at night duty. We would get every heparin out, like twenty of them, because everyone had it. Mm. Now you never would do that now. Yeah. We would prepare Indiv everything in advance. We had a trolley, we had all our drugs set up, and we'd go through ch 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 like this. Because that's all we did all night. Like some days it was three o'clock in the morning and we hadn't been to the toilet. Yeah. And we were just flat out. So in the night time, you had eight patients yeah. each, and you were in charge of the ward. So from the time that I graduated, I became an associate nurse manager. So, like, they weren't, that's right. You were like, there's a charge nurse and then there's in charges. Yeah. So I'd be like the second in charge. So every shift there was someone who was an in charge person. And I always worked in that role until I became a nurse unit manager when I was in charge of the wards. And it was really, really busy. And you just, that's just how it was. So you just got used to that. So I think what I think about mistakes, I guess, is that I think again, that you can reframe that as a concept. Mm. So I think, you have a responsibility to other people, which um, obviously there's a legal responsibility, isn't it? A professional, but also as a human responsibility to others to be direct and to treat them properly and give them your attention. Mm. So my, what I would say to myself is that make that space to give that thing your attention. Try not to do too many things. Mm. Mm. So you, so it was very difficult at times because there's so much going on, and um, so you had to really concentrate on what you were doing. And at some point, that became so exhausting that I mm. couldn't do it anymore. When I left, I left. I was so tired and worn out after 27 years of being hyper vigilant and mm. always paying absolute attention to everything that I just kind of like went. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then really had to sort of find a new way of being in the ward. But yeah, I would say, so I would pay attention and I would try to be honest. 
mm. that that's all I could say about that you know as a concept because I feel as a human and as a professional I have responsibilities to give my best and pay attention mm. yeah so I think we worked in a team so that we if people did the wrong thing then we would all go oh fuck and, <laughs> you know and then just yeah get in there and it sounded like they created whether it was intentional or not but a culture of that mistakes happen and that's okay absolutely yeah which so I there's think a is... strong culture of that mm. in yeah. um, nursing and uh, and I, i'm not sure how it goes in medicine they try to encourage that because it's a, it's in fact the situation but i don't know how doctors deal with that nurses deal with it a lot better because they're not as bullshitty <laughs> yeah nurses are pretty much I've, most of the nurses I know have worked in really extreme situations and they have seen death and life and death at mm. close quarters, so they don't really bullshit too much. Yeah. There's no veneer in that role. Mm. Yeah, you, well, you wouldn't want it really, to be fair. Even as a patient, I wouldn't want to... Don't sugarcoat what's wrong with me. But there's no, well, there's no time for that. Yeah. In fact, we're more harsh, I guess, in that situation because... <laughs> There's so much life-threatening stuff going on that you're just going, get in the fucking bed and stop it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? If someone's being a jackass and someone next to them's dying, you think, well, shut the fuck up. I'm here. And I'm in I'll the middle of something. You. Yeah. You know, they talk about bedside manner and nurses. Yeah. <laughs> there ain't any. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love funny. it. Because yeah. you just have to do a prioritisation, isn't it? It's like triage. Yeah. So triage is what's the most important thing I need to do. Yeah. That's that's what I'm doing. Mm. And you just say, sit down and wait. Yeah. I will yeah. be with you. Yeah. I'm trying I'm, to save this person. I, <laughs> yeah. I I realise that that the be- whole bedside manner and the nurse is a lovely thing isn't necessarily like always true when we had kids and the midwife and the nurses that would come in and change the baby and like. They weren't rough, but like rougher than you would expect them to be with a newborn mm. baby. And then I was like, ah, this lady does this every, every day. day. Yeah, a thousand so, times yeah. a day. So it's my special little baby, but for her, it's like a case note Here's or like yeah. an assessment. Like it's not. It's an interesting you know, way to put yeah. it. She's just, yeah, routine. So I get it. Mm. Yeah. All right. I, I guess it's whether it's genuine, because I guess there are times when people do things that are rude. Mm. And, yeah. that, and that's different again, like because I think you can explain, but you do have to explain. Mm. Yeah. Otherwise, it can be construed as rude. Mm. And then there are some people who are absolutely rude nurses, and that's not okay. And yeah. that needs to be snipped. Yeah. That's In the butt. It does. Yeah. It's not okay it's not. to be rude. No, uh, and unnecessary in a place like a hospital. I would. No time to fuck off. Absolutely. Mm. Well, before we uh, get run away too much, the last and final question, Mm. (laughs) I almost forgot that we still had one to go, is uh, what are your self-care strategies and do you implement them well? No, I don't think I do anything well, but I keep persisting. Mm -hmm. That's all I can say is I keep trying. (laughs) I just think, oh, fuck, I failed again. So, no, what are my self-care? My self-care strategies are to be as subversive and... Um, you know, challenge things as much as I can mm. because I think again, this is all self care is about actually having a practical approach to what's really useful and relevant in one's life. Mm. And of course, I'm at a different age to you, so mm. I've got 
different things happening and different priorities. Yeah. And I would always think, oh, do I really need to do that because it looks like shit? Or is that going to make me happy? I don't think so. And so fortunately, when you get older, I think that you probably get to a space you really don't care too much about anything. <laughs> you don't give a shit. Mm. And you don't care what people think. And you just start to please yourself. So that's a nice part about it is that very little matters to you pretty much. Mm. I think, no, maybe not everybody. I'm in a very fortunate position that I can stay there, that I have a place to live and I'm not dependent on anyone. Mm. And so I can pick and choose. And a lot of the time in my life, from when I was young, I was subjected to quite a lot of mistreatment, which I couldn't avoid. Yeah. But now I'm in the fortunate position that I can. Mm. I do not have to put up with things, mm. and I don't. Mm. So it doesn't matter how long I've known someone. If I don't like what they do, they're gone, mm. and I wouldn't be around them. Yeah. So I think... Um, Self-care, ultimately, is about making a good choice for mm. yourself. That's all it is. It's not about anything except thinking about whether this thing will be beneficial yeah. or whether it won't. And then deciding whether the risk... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's yeah, just yeah, yeah. always a risk assessment. Yeah, yeah. I feel like you've, you've consciously put yourself in front of the eight ball. Yeah. Like you're always thinking ahead of the game and... You know, like I'm you're a bit being, of a planner. Yeah, but <laughs> not only like I can I can imagine just with your activities or your life, but also like you're saying, you're not going to do a job that you don't like. Yeah. So it was someone oh. else who said it. I think it was Ben or someone else. Pretty much said the first thing I do is I'm not going to apply for a job where I'm not happy with the people that I'm no. working with or no, working for. Mm. So you're already ahead of the game mm. by yeah. doing that and making that choice. And sounds like you do things like that. Like you put yourself in I positions. I try to now. Yeah. yeah. Like mm -hmm. I wouldn't have always understood that. That mm. was For the, sure, yeah. The thing about it is that when you grow up, like the way I was brought up was pretty horrible, but you realise sometimes you, there's half of you that tries to conform and there's another half of you that doesn't want to. Mm. And it's a steady, it's really hard because you're trying to reject a whole bunch of values and it actually takes your whole life sometimes to reject them mm. and find the thing that is relevant. Mm. So my advice to anyone would be shove it all. Mm. Just check it out early. Don't believe anything people tell you because people talk shit and they tell you bullshit. My mother told me so much shit that was irrelevant, useful, useless, mm. cruel, again, that didn't help other people didn't help me mm. it was just not nuts rubbish mm. and people grow up with that don't they to a lesser or greater degree I'm not saying it's all really profound mm. in some ways for me it was yeah but but for some people it's not and so I think just challenge everything check it out question it don't mm. accept anything unless it you test it out and it works mm. and mm. then you think okay then mm. I'll do that yeah you know yeah I think then you're living your life from a place um, 
where everything that you do, you've made your own individual assessment of. Like, Absolutely. I, I don't like that because I've experienced that. Not because I read in the fucking Herald Sun somewhere that I shouldn't do X, Y, and Z. It's something right. that you go and experience. Well, I never read the paper, from. really. I have, no. Because <laughs> I don't really care for it. Like, I don't set any store with anything. Yeah. I don't have anything that I think. What I have learned is really to trust in my own self because mm. there hasn't been anything to trust or mm. anyone so I've learned to rely on myself and the only way and I know I don't know everything so I test things out or I ask people mm. but I wouldn't accept anything without a bit of investigation yeah. yeah and there aren't too many people that I respect whose whose values I think are values that I would feel like resonance Mm. and stuff like that do you know what i mean but i i find it really comfortable working here with this organization Mm. i think that there are lots of people many more people as a group who have values that are um i feel have integrity and stuff yeah so i feel comfortable um absolutely Mm. so for me that's a huge deal to feel comfortable and resonant yeah in that space so i'm lucky because maybe other people don't feel like that i feel fortunate mm. and grateful to be in the position where i'm able to work and and in when i was young like there was so much more prejudice about women and you mm. know not having access to things so i'm lucky that i can be an independent woman and support myself and live a perfectly decent life without relying on anybody else so that's in my, I feel gratitude. Like I like mm. to think every day when I get up, I feel grateful for mm. the things that I have because not everyone is lucky enough to have that. And I think to be independent and free mm. is the greatest gift of all. Mm. You know, to just really be able to be yourself and not feel that anyone is pressuring you in any way. Yeah. It's a terribly important thing mm. for all people, isn't it? Yeah, I think that that's something that I've been trying to like work on more. Um, and I, I think I saw it. Uh, unfortunately, it was like through like a meme on the Facebook <laughs> thing that came up. Me. But I think it was Jim Carrey mm. yeah. said like the ultimate, I can't remember exactly how he phrased it, but he essentially said like not giving a fuck about what anyone thinks about you yeah. is the ultimate freedom. It yeah. is, like absolutely. To just, and I was like, yeah, that's so true because so often – it, you, you do, you have like that self-consciousness, whether it's about how you look, what you're doing, are you doing a good job, I shouldn't be in this position, you know, you talk yourself out of things, whether it's the job you're in or your friendship group or I shouldn't have said this or, you know, whatever it is. Like, but if you just didn't care, like if you just let all of that go, the weight that wouldn't be on is your it, shoulders would thing, be ultimate, you mm. know, and that's something I've been kind of, kind of, it's something I've been trying to concentrate on um more and more with with whatever it is i'm putting out into the world uh or the and not being rude to people but just well i think like, that's the fine balance yeah. isn't it is to not give offense yeah whilst still maintaining your own sense of self mm. yeah and i think like it's it's a in a way it's about the way that we've been programmed as human beings about the value system so everything is about value do we have a right to health care do we have a right to things like the fact that even in medical things that people are blamed for their health 
because mm. uh, we're not taking responsibility. So in some ways people can't because they're limited by their finances, their economic situation, what they have access to, you know, what they just can't, you know, live this perfect life that we're meant to be living. Mm. And so there's a sense of blame in just about everything that for some reason I have brought myself to this position because I haven't minded myself or I'm not worthy or, you know, I haven't. And it's just an awful way of conceptualizing yourself. Like I just think it's so unnecessary and unhelpful mm. because actually all you have is a sense of guilt and negative. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You're starting from a negative point. Whereas I think if we can see that everyone has a right to be here in whatever form they are, I even find like disability is such a limited kind of way of thinking of people rather than thinking that everyone is just different. Mm. It's not really a disability. It's because we think it's a disability. It's not a disability. Someone's just autistic or whatever. They've just got a different way of processing. Just their physical makeup's different. It's just like the way we always look at things in the worst way so mm. that people are looking at themselves from a sense of inadequacy, that they've not met some particular standard. But why do we need those standards anyway? Why can we, can't we live without a standard? Mm. So that actually people don't automatically feel that they've not been able to be whole. Mm. It's so true, even at, if the, the, I was going to say, it's so true, isn't it? So even just before, before we started recording the podcast, um, yeah. what is it, the Social Worker Tudor or something? It's a Facebook page that. Oh, yeah. I don't know what it came from. I don't know the whole story around it, to be honest, but they share really funny memes around yeah. like social work and youth work or whatever. Yeah. And they popped one up before. And it, um, it said something about, like, dear new social workers that are new graduate social workers. Yep. Um, so it, I think it's a state-based Facebook, so I don't know if they've just had, like, a big round of graduations of yeah, um, social workers over there. Yeah, starting in the hospitals I, now. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, but the quote was, like, you are doing a good enough job. It's yeah. just yeah, self-doubt. Yeah. You need yeah. the right support. Like, and it was That's just this exactly quote around, right, stop second-guessing yourself. It's yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. You're new. Everyone does that. Like, everybody in the world second-guesses themselves. Absolutely. You'll be okay. Yeah. But it is, it's everybody, there is an element of that that comes from everybody around, whether it's work, whether it's personal. Well, I think it's everything, isn't it? It's mm. programmed. It's the way that we're programmed as humans. It's like a sense of brainwashing. And I think it's much worse in countries like China and stuff where there's so much control, like through politics or, again, control through religion or whatever mm. form of control, that in order to control people, you've got to tell them they're inadequate. And so you can then say to them, this is what's wrong with you and you need to do this and give me some money, mm. by the way, and, you know, and then we can guarantee, you know, you could be this or that. So it's all just about control again, isn't it, and power and stuff. And it's really got nothing to do with people feeling whole and powerful, whatever mm. their circumstances. Because mm. you can see children who, you know, who are born into families who don't see anything that they have as a disability. You just teach them to be a person in the world mm. they're fine mm. they don't even think that there's anything wrong with themselves or they're blind they've never talked this is a problem i've just just been blind i just do what i have to do so we have it's like it's like all those beautiful people like what's his name that little fellow oh what's his name i forget but they just do some amazing things in wheelchairs and stuff and you think i can't even do that and i've got legs at work <laughs> you know and you're just amazed by their sense of self mm. and um, and of course they've had terrible times where people have been down on them and they've had to overcome them and 
mm. than they have. It's just fantastic, I think. Mm. How inspirational, mm. isn't it? Because when you're feeling a bit useless yourself, and you think, oh, I've got nothing to complain about. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Yeah, you know? it is an interesting, and I was going to say, I think we spoke about it um, when we were talking to Ben. I think it was the Beyonce quote. And I was like, you've got the same amount of hours in a day as Beyonce and we were speaking about. It's You've got to measure it to somebody that mm. would have, I guess, like a, a value within your life. Because I was saying that yeah. Beyonce is not someone I look up to. I'm like, no. it doesn't matter. No. Whereas I think um, Ben had made a point or someone had made a point yeah. around, yeah. yeah, about, well, then who, who are you measuring the 24 hours yeah, by? Yeah. And obviously yeah. everybody's resourcing is different. Like yeah, Beyonce's resourcing is very different to mine. But... Even keeping in mind someone, um, yeah, keeping in mind someone that resonates with you, not someone who don't resonate with. But the other thing about it is that that question you asked about the, the, um, the wrestling, yeah, is I think that so I hate competition. I don't do anything competitive, right? I'm against it, mm. and um, I do not. If someone wants something, I'll give it to them because I can't be bothered fighting with them for it. I can't. I can't give shit. Yeah. So that happened to me in school because when I came to live here, everyone was so competitive about sport and everything. Right. And and I used to be really good at art, and there was a girl who just competed with me all the time. And eventually, I stopped doing art because mm. I couldn't be bothered her, having her like really fight with me for the position of being like the best student. Yeah. Okay. And I just thought, are you serious? Like, fuck off. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> she did get the best student because she really went for it and mm. I just thought oh my god like who would fucking care mm. but because I don't care about things like that and I don't like competition I'm not interested in competitive sport I don't understand the need to be better than somebody else I don't actually can't see that so I think why can't everybody just be like who they are like the fact that you even have to so you might do two things in a day and I might do ten mm. and who fucking cares like <laughs> do you know what I'm yeah, saying absolutely like, and the best thing about that is because I learned that from my children who say who would say to me no I'm not doing that because they would think that my values were nonsense yeah and um and I'd go oh okay whatever and then I have to let it go because I think oh whatever you do what you want and so consequently we have this kind of thing where they'll say to me you idiot why are you doing that and I think well I don't know I'm like doing it because I've been programmed like this so yeah it's it's interesting how you see yourself and how your own program is in a such a way and you're kind of living to undo that programming mm. so yes because I one of the things I think great pride in is that my children are so subversive like they do nothing I tell them <laughs> they argue with me constantly and they just tell me they're not doing stuff and it's fabulous I can't I look at them and I think yes I have been good at this <laughs> because I would say to them I want you to do this it's really important they go no <laughs> yes you have to do it it's important and they go but why your teachings you backfired on you in some yeah respects. and I thought <laughs> I've been a useless parent because no one does anything they tell me. But I think actually I've been actually very good at it because mm. they're all very subversive. They refuse to do anything you tell them, mm. and they just don't believe in anything either. So, but probably challenge people that ask them to do things that mm. maybe they go, well, why? Why do you want no, me no, to do they that? Do. They don't do it. They, oh, they don't. But they genuinely don't go in for it. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's what I mean. It's like they genuinely don't subscribe to stuff so they'll just say no we're mm. not doing it 
Mm. Not just to myself, but they're quite hard to engage. Like mm. you can't get them to do things. Mm. Other people try to get them to do things <laughs> and they won't. Would have been a great um, resistor of peer pressure there. Well, I don't know how it was for them in terms of peer pressure, but as grown ups, mm. and they certainly argued with me at home and they don't do anything I say and they've rejected all my values, basically. The only things I ever tried to teach them were grammar and good table manners. How <laughs> <laughs> very English of you. I, well, I, well, it didn't have to be English. I just wanted them to be able to spell and yeah. construct a sentence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and my son... You ate dinner with some fucking useless, So none of them can spell. <laughs> and my son quite often says things, and I say to him, what the hell are you talking about? I have spent all this money on your education. You can't even construct a sentence. <laughs> and he can't. But he's perfectly confident, but, you know, like just yeah. for that thing that I wanted him to do. Mm. Sure. And it's interesting, isn't it, that because I hate sport, he was really good at football and everybody said to me, you're so fantastic at football. And I'm like, fucking don't give me shit. <laughs> I don't care. I don't want to go to football every week because we have to go to football every week and listen to everyone. Every Sunday it's a football time. <laughs> that would be a pretty shitty situation if you think about it. Imagine hating mm. Sports and then having a kid that's really gifted at footy well, and having they both to go were my younger children and training. were both the best in their school and stuff. Uh, and they're very good at sport and they've got excellent hand-eye coordination and stuff. And I don't. It wasn't awful in the sense that I admire anyone's skills. Yeah, you can find but, um, art in anything. Yeah, I just thought, how can this be happening to me? <laughs> I hate this. This is shared. And then, because uh, I don't really want to go and sit out and drink with people I don't know. Sure. I mean, I'm happy to drink with people I do know, but I didn't want to sit there <laughs> yeah. and talk bullshit with people. Mm. But I had to, so that was sad. Mm. I'm, uh, I'm curious how, where, so you did 27 or so years in like what mainstream sentence? nursing. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, at the Royal Melbourne. Then Royal I worked Melbourne. in a private hospital. Yeah. So when I was 40, I think I left and went, to, um, I went, no, no, that's not right. I went to uni, so I decided I'd go to uni. I couldn't decide whether to do the unit manager's job, which I'd applied for, or go yeah. to uni. And so mm. they didn't get back to me, so I applied, and I got both on the same day. Oh, So then I had to start this new job and go to uni, <laughs> so then I deferred and did it slowly. So I just did, uh, like, a graduate certificate, and and then I went, then I left and went to a private hospital. Yeah. Was that further studies in nursing? No. I went to Monash Uni. I did it in the Faculty of Business. I okay. did um, a management yep. certificate, a graduate certificate in management. Mm-hmm. And then I, then I thought, oh, I'd had enough of that after that. I mm. wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And, um, and then I just kept thinking, why am I doing this? Because I'm putting off doing fine arts mm. and... You know, so then I couldn't decide what to do. And then I lost my job and then I came to Wysox. So, because um, I was trying to figure out what to do and then I just decided. Mm. So how did you make the move from like sort of mainstream nursing into the, into a drug and alcohol position? Well, strangely enough, it was a very terrible time actually. And I won't go into it just because I don't know who will listen to this and it's really... Mm. A private space for me, but yeah. um, the hospital that I worked in, um, they wanted me to sack people, and I refused, and so they dismissed me. 
and I took them to the Commission for Unfair Dismissal with the Union. So that was a really difficult period. Mm. And then um, I also got divorced, I got separated, and it was really hard, and I was in a really awkward space. I didn't mm. know what to do. I applied for all sorts of jobs. I hadn't had any money. They didn't pay me. All this shit going on. And then the job came up, so my, my cousin's um, wife was working here and she said to me, there's a job going in our organisation and did I know what anyone who would be interested? And I said, oh, me. I might be interested. <laughs> and so she basically said to me, you have to not be, like you have to be prepared to give people education on you know, harm minimisation mm. framework. And I thought, did that? Mm. And so I applied for the job. How long ago was that, Vanessa? Um, 2008. I 2008. In your experience, so you had like a heaps of shit ton of time, 27 years or something at the hospital, working in a harm reduction framework or under yeah. a harm reduction framework, it, was that a completely different lens for you going into the home-based withdrawal? It's absolutely different. Because, but it's a different sort of scenario because if you're working in a hospital or in a, um, a more structured environment, mm. um, there's a different. It's a different kind of framework for working. So if I was in a hospital doing drug and alcohol, mm. there are different policies, and mm. you know the whole thing is different. So it's absolutely different. And then you come out and work in a framework here, mm. and. And when I started, it wasn't a good framework. Okay. There was no orientation. There was very little understanding of the world. Mm. I shouldn't have got the world because I didn't have any experience in mental health. Yeah, okay. So currently, if I went for it, I wouldn't get it mm. because there were lots of people who were working who hadn't had proper professional checks and uh, the organisation okay. really wasn't running very well at that time. Mm. It wasn't um, fulfilling like basic obligations. <clears throat> you know, we didn't have a proper role description, so proper contracts. It was all very ad hoc. Yeah, so I have lots of criticisms about how it was in that. So when an organisation starts, so it was in its like tenth year, mm. and it had been very organic people said and I hate that word <laughs> it had developed out yeah. of a need and then it reached a stage in organizational business it'll tell you about a consolidating stage where the first stage is where organizations search for their market and find their place yeah and then they have to have a consolidating stage where they put structure and policies and and have definition around the work that they do but why so well the organisation wasn't really doing that. Mm. I think because they were still in their infancy and working their space, which they do. They've worked that all out now. Mm. And you know that because the things that we've had to, you know. Yeah, well, and things develop as well. That's like what right, you were saying, you know. And all sorts of stuff. Whereas you would probably notice the difference coming from corrections. Oh, yeah. Where everything is so super structured. So yeah. that's what it's like in a hospital. Mm. So it's getting that balance right. Mm. But I think that to work in a very um, like unstructured space, you have to have absolute autonomy and sense mm. of what your role encompasses. Yeah, which I think I do. Mm. So um, I know what I don't know, 
that's what I have to know. Mm. They don't know. And be very clear that that's not what I can do. Yeah. And I do. So if I didn't know and I wasn't comfortable, I wouldn't do something. Mm. And But I've not really been asked to do that. So I guess in the role, it was different, the person who did it before me. And there were nurses before. Mm. And so each nurse maybe had a slightly different way of doing it. Yeah. Um, and there was no real um, consistency around the world. And mm. even still, there's not a lot of consistency. And we talk about that quite often in the nurses' meetings. Mm. About, um, and I think they're working on, you know, developing a proper role description and people are working on, they're, you know, talking to people and asking what they do. So in their different regions, mm. depending on whether there's a clinic at the site or something, there'll be different responsibilities for different reporting, different billing. And there'd be and different needs. Like you think about different areas, like some areas are more multicultural than others. So then the health, um, I guess, presentations that you might see or the AOD presentations you might see are completely different in one area to another. Well, so I it guess sort of makes sense. It that does they... change, but that, that shouldn't change for nursing. Like yeah. that, that's like across the board. Oh, yeah, nursing well, shouldn't change. No. But if you're in a role that you've got sort of different home-based, you know, home-based withdrawal is a, is a big banner. There's, yeah. you know, like we were talking about before, holistic health. There's heaps of different things. You might be helping someone get linked with an optometrist because they've got, you know, degenerative eye disease or oh, something. Oh, absolutely. So Couple it's specific to the particular clients you're having. Yeah. Yeah. But the way that the real differences are actually in the nature of the work that has to be done mm. is in the sense of what the organisation is supplying at that site. Yeah. So if I'm just doing a pure outreach-based service, so I, we're not doing anything clinic-based, mm. then I don't have to keep a clinic. I don't have to have an accredited clinic. I don't have to manage the stock. Well, I do for PBE now, but yeah. like there's all sorts of requirements, legislative requirements for managing stock, mm. policies. So there's a whole like structural framework there that mm. I'm not having to do very grateful to because <laughs> other nurses who work in sites where there's a bit more formality mm. or I like in an like... nsp for example if they're absolutely. dispensing safe injecting kit. so there's lots of things there'd be records that have to be kept mm. so fortunately i happen to be in this very fortunate position <laughs> where i can do mostly outreach i don't have to manage things here yeah like keeping things and um and i can make it what i want it to be in the sense so mm. i have Forge, I try to forge relationships with the GPs of the clients so that I can actually take them there mm. and get what they need there, which is a better model for ongoing care because then if they're not working with me, they can still access a GP. Mm. There's a level of understanding about what's occurred to them mm. because I've negotiated all that in the beginning and advocated and stuff. Mm. So I set that relationship up perhaps. Which it's so convoluted because I even think of myself going, like there's been times that you've yelled at me about going, I've had a blood test that mm, I've not mm, gone and, mm. and I'll make a joke about having the slip still. And everyone else yeah. will be like, go get your fucking blood taken. Yeah, yeah. But even for myself as what I would say a functioning and adult. To, but it's scary, it, isn't it? It's convoluted. Yeah. Like there's been times that I've been like, what, who do I, do I just rock yeah. up with this? What do I do? Yeah. And Vanessa's been like, just call that number, you do this, blah, blah, blah. So it's good that particularly young people in a space that, you know, would be, Life well, can be chaos that's right, because their mum can't do it or yeah. whatever. So yeah. they don't have anyone in their home mm. who could do that for them. But even, as you say, I don't do medical things that I should. Mm. And um, 
because I always put it off because that's what you do, isn't it? Because yeah. you're too scared to get the, the worst news. Mm. So anyway, when you have a bit of help with that, it's always good. Whether mm. you're having difficulty, you know, you're functioning or you're not functioning, whatever that is, mm. having a helping hand is good, isn't it? Mm. That's yeah. all it is, really. And so, then, yeah. oh, you go. No, no, you're right. I, I was just going to say, and maybe it'll link into your question, if we could sink into your role a little bit, because mm. I think that, um, like, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit at the start, and Nat acknowledged that a lot of people would understand the concept of a detox and a rehab, mm. yeah. but the home base withdrawal something is something that people might not know a lot about. And I was saying to you before we started recording, like, when, when we met here at work, I had only heard of a home base withdrawal program and home-based withdrawal nurse when i started here i had no idea mm. yeah. so it'd be super interesting to hear a little bit more about like how like exactly sort of your role and, and what you might okay. do with young people but no what i was gonna say what would a normal home-based withdrawal client look like like what how might that occur that's what i was gonna say yeah. okay so that, that's really hard in this organization because with our clients they're mm. often homeless and stuff like that that's mm. not how the role works in the adult sector mm. so because the role is really a role in the adult sector for someone who's not who's gone past pre-contemplation is <laughs> ready for action mm. who's relatively stable they've got a place to live mm. so they can actually consider reducing ceasing substance use because they have some sort of stability around them yeah. they might have people that they can rely on to support them through so, so that role is really more an adult sector role where mm. you just talk to someone, ascertain what they want, then work out how to do this. Is it a drug that we need to have a doctor on board with? Yeah. Because other symptoms of withdrawal are going to be a problem. And do we need to have all these other mm. things? Do we need a mental health care plan? You know, that sort of stuff. So could people withdraw? Um, this is where I'm going to be the naive, non AOD worker in the conversation, which is probably helpful. Yeah. Can people withdraw at home from any substance, or is it or is there some that you can't withdraw from well, at I would, home? I would say that in principle you could do it with anything. Yeah. However, it depends on the level of and duration of use. Okay. So if you've been using a long time or a higher dose, these are the things we're matching up what you're likely to experience and mm. whether this is life threatening. And with alcohol. Um, and like benzodiazepines because of the seizures and stuff. So mm. you would be worrying about that. Mm -hmm. um, and GHB, apparently very similar uh, withdrawal syndromes mm. and seizures. So those ones you would think, you would imagine, is this person using a lot heavily? Has this been going on for a long period of time? So the premise is that for young people, they very much haven't reached that stage where they're really dependent on things because it is a progressive thing mm, so adults usually are likely to have more dependence tolerance mm. and risks because they've been using for a longer period of time so that's all we are we're mitigating the risks of that were inherent in having used for a long time mm. and then you would use like in detoxes detox scales and stuff so you would assess their physical symptoms and then you would make a decision about medicating them based on the the severity mm. so in home-based withdrawals the premise is really i would say um, around slowly resisting mm. because if you consider that in order to become dependent you've slowly increased and you've built up a tolerance because your body has got used to one level and then you have to get more to get that same 
um, reaction. So the premise would be that in order to reduce, without causing yourself a lot of grief, mm. but just minimal, so you can manage it, you would do it slowly. So mm-hmm. particularly like with benzos, they do a chart so they will assess what people are using, the pattern of the use and stuff. Yeah. Then they um, will um, transfer them o- over a couple of weeks from a short-acting to a long-acting benzo, which is diazepam. Mm. And then they would ta- taper that dose over the course of the day. Mm. So you would start two days maybe every four hours and two days three times a day and you would go for a week mm. so str- in a physiological sense like over a week most people it takes about a week to get over anything so the first the the worst days are different depending on the drug so the first day the second day of abstinence whatever mm. by the third day most mostly you've hit your worst days with most drugs and by the end of the week you would be over your physical symptoms yeah. and it could be managed but obviously there's cravings and other things that are going to come up anxiety depression trauma mm. those are the things that complicate it isn't it it's not a simply physical thing because mm. the physical dependence has built up because someone has felt better when they're used and so they are relying on that so it's a complex, like it's a picture of looking at all those factors. Mm. And I think because if you think of it in a sense, like a lot of people that may not have necessarily experienced um, substance use or known somebody who engages in substance use, the sort of um, picture moment that springs to mind for me is if you're watching a movie and you, I think there's you know, there's been a thousand movies where someone's been locked in a room to mm, withdraw mm, from heroin mm, and you see mm. them over the period of, of what they lead you to believe a couple of days where they yes. become quite angry and aggressive and then they're vomiting and they're physically sick and they can't sleep and then they, yes. they look quite unwell and um, that's probably the most visual thing people have seen who have not experienced AOD. So I think if you... Um, if people are thinking about it in a in a setting like that, that's not what home based withdrawal. So the nurse would doesn't come be. and lock the door and like. <laughs> no, no, and not that I'm implying that that's what people would think, but I guess people who no, have never engaged. It's a really in, good thing to say. Yeah, yeah people really who have never been immersed in the environment of you know home based withdrawal or withdrawal of any kind. Home. It's not sort of lock them in a room, give mm. them some food well, and I mean, water. And that, and that was what happened at Odyssey House mm. years ago. Is mm. that people were shut off from their families, and they were locked, and they went through incredible um, distressing symptoms so Mm. why would we do that to anyone that's not even sensible or cruel I mean that's cruel in my opinion Mm. so the premise is that we treat we reduce the likelihood of that by giving people um, other 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 drugs to treat them Mm. but certainly with opioids you would not do that no we don't advocate that because number one even we don't advocate abstinence because the tolerance is then diminished mm. and they often die of a death overdose mm. when they return to the community. Yeah. That's what happens. So the policies of most places is that they have to go on an opioid replacement therapy. And the premise is that you would go on to Suboxone because mm. Suboxone, you can get down to a smaller dose and then you can taper off more easily mm. so that if you're on methadone they would bring you down slowly and then t- transfer you to suboxone and then taper you off 
But in reality, methadone is the same as opioids, and people who are on methadone are on it for life and very rarely come off it. And that's fine too. That's no big deal. If that's what they have to do, who cares? Mm. It's like being on any drug for any health condition. Yeah. Except I think that you do still have tolerance. and then So that is a problem, whereas Suboxone is a much better drug in the sense that it has a threshold mm. uh, above which you can flood it, but it doesn't make any difference. You don't get any benefit from a higher dose because it's already flooded your receptors, mm. which is why you can get tinier doses and get them off. So, um, of course, that really depends. And lots of people who have used and become opioid dependent actually have many other psychological things. So, mm. in fact, most people are not becoming addicted to heroin they're becoming addicted to panadine 4 and codeine and endone that's why there were more stricter regulations placed last year yeah so that is the biggest group of um opioid dependent people and in america i don't know if you know but they had a class action against that company that actually specifically touted doctors and paid them for increasing people's mm. use of fentanyl so they were charged, all the people in that company who deliberately did that, and doctors were deregistered, and nurse practitioners who actually um, dispense, you know, prescribed and dispensed these things. So there's some talk about the companies always knowing the propensity for addiction dependence in mm. coding and nevertheless marketing it. Mm. And I think that will come out as years go by mm. so I think that there's a lot of stuff that goes on that's pretty horrible and contribute so yes to answer your question um, it's a different thing so I will always talk to people about slowly reducing any drug that they were using and then looking at the reasons like motivations for use mm. and um, trying to address some of that stuff and our clients, as you know, are very much pre-contemplative, <laughs> homeless. They don't have the stability. They don't have the security, like independence, to do mm. it. So they don't really do homeless withdrawal. Mm. They just do basically like education, checking mm. in, linking them up to things. Hence why the models more probably would have been designed originally for adults. Is that right? It would have been, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. similar with like a, like a Dayhab model mm, too, right, mm, with an mm, adult model... Mm. Which um, I believe, and I guess I think I'll I, I can say the organisation because I think it's a positive mm. thing. Like Task Force are doing, or have uh, I think in twenty twenty, yeah, yeah, reset life, yeah. yeah. Which I was like yeah. when I was talking to someone that I know that works there, um, they were saying, oh, it's the first um, yeah, they yeah, have model. model for young people, yeah. and I was like, really? what? Yeah. Like why yeah. aren't we doing? You know, and obviously we, I guess as a yeah. um, society. Yeah, society or more a sector, like, yeah. moving towards that like, opening up, like, sort of, like, yeah, a, with a home-based withdrawal for young people or a day have for young people. And, yeah, but I was just, um, it was just interesting. But I can understand the concept probably more just around, like, being more mature, right? Like, as an adult. Absolutely. The concept yeah. of and going it's, it's into the day have. it's irrelevant being doing at home. it in the youth sector. Yeah. It's just this argument half the time. Okay. Because mm. the people aren't really in the headspace. Mm. There's no point. Like, it's harm men. It's education and harm men. Mm. Mm. And just linking in and engaging with them and getting to know them so they trust you and yeah. might listen to something you say. Mm. Well, that's that's what they all. say, like, 
I think for a lot of the work that we do as well, talking about um, like AOD work and intervention, a lot of the work that um, I guess even I do, it's not the entrenched sort of like intrinsic neuroscience, technical jargon, you know, figuring out someone's brain or their level of tolerance or their level of dependence because a lot of the time the young people, um, you know, I'm not saying that there isn't young people who are dependent on substances. Well, you keep that in the back of your mind because it informs your work, but it's not the thing you're doing with a young person. Exactly, exactly. And I think a lot of the work, you know, um, Johan, I always forget his name, Hari, talks about the opposite of... um, addiction isn't sobriety it's connection Mm. and so I think a lot of the work that you do with young people particularly people under the age of 25 is building connection with them meeting them where they're at leaving your ego the fuck out of it because that's got nothing to do with it and being a part of their process and supporting them with what they need because the reality is somebody isn't using drugs you know people use drugs recreationally to have fun all the time that's just a reality of the community and the society and who we cares live in. Anyway, who cares? Exactly. It really annoys me. I was arguing with someone's mother today <laughs> because I just think, are you serious? Like, people go on, she was upset because the child wanted to get alcohol. Mm. And, like, this is a real, this is a problem for me because it's a medical thing is to say no alcohol and alcohol is harmful to your brain. And, mm. But I bought alcohol for my children. Mm. They've mm. all used drugs. Mm. And there they have. Who the fuck? Mm. They're not addicted to it. It's mm. not going to make you addicted. Mm. Like, that's not the reason that people become addicted mm. to drugs, is it? No. So the point is that I wish all drugs were not criminal mm. because that's nonsense and I don't agree with that. And alcohol causes more trouble because it is legal. Mm. However, I still think it's just a thing. I like alcohol myself. You know, mm. I can totally see why it's enjoyable to drink and I don't have a problem with it and it's really... A kind of totally unrealistic ambition to mm. see the world without drugs. Who cares? Mm. If people want to take drugs and it makes them feel better, what's it to do with you? Mm. Of course their behaviour when they take drugs is an issue, and yeah. that's a separate thing. Mm. But, you know, what? where do we all come off with this heightened sense of, I kind of don't understand about vigilance about drugs mm. and this labelling people and stuff well i think again it comes back to the conversation we're having earlier around you know society's measures of where we should be in life you should grow up you should graduate high school you should go to uni you should meet someone get married have kids buy a house you know there's a particular order that society likes to imply that life should be lived and and it's the same as the war on drugs there's a certain you know there's a political agenda there's a plenty of agendas behind that go to high school go to university try pingers get married experiment with mushies do the like you know that's not set out in the handbook of society so i think that it comes back to the same thing it's totally political isn't it because cannabis has been around for years if they'd had it a way of getting money from it, they would have made it legal ages ago. Mm. And this all starts with America and their fucked up attitude with life. <laughs> but that it's all about money. If they mm. could have, and why didn't they legalize it years ago and then have people pay tax on it? Yeah. What the hell? Like yeah. everything else. Mm. Who cares? Well, I think because, you know, for the the image well, the that they were pushing ultra is ultra conservatives have had the stage have they not yeah absolutely but i th- i think that's the 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 way that they sell it to the broader Community. society it's you know you smoke a joint and then you'll be injecting heroin next week and then yeah. you're a drug addict well, on the street that, like that thing that thing about the gateway drug yeah that really <laughs> annoys me i just think 
Is it what is it gateway? Gateway, yeah, yeah. yeah. I couldn't think of what they call it. And then, the gateway mm-hmm. drug, yeah. Really? Have you even actually got any research on that, you fucking idiot? Well it was um old mate, Russell Brand said trauma. Well, I love him. Yeah, trauma. Because trauma is the yeah. gateway drug. Yeah. Yeah. And God he's not wrong. Him. Yeah, because yeah, a lot of the time, yeah. you know, we talk about substance use or people who use substances and, and why they do that. Like one of the biggest questions any AOD worker would ask is, what do you like about your yeah, substance yeah. use? Because that's going to give you more insight poor. into them and what they miss that's, intrinsically yeah. in themselves that they get instantaneously. And of course, from we know right? plenty of research that yeah. says that if their neurotransmitters are low and we've got a bit of anxiety and depression, mm. whoopee. It works. It yeah. works, yeah. And it's yeah. straight and away, it's, it's not thing, 10 hours it? in therapy. It's no, no. instantaneous to mm. whatever well, it is right. they're trying but to achieve. But it works, isn't it? Like, mm. you feel shit, you take it, you feel better. Mm. And obviously it works, because look at all the clinical you? work going into, you know, we went down to Geelong and um, <clears throat> we, spoke, we were speaking about the, uh, what's it called? I always fuck up the name. Uh, I probably got it written down. Um, it's mushroom therapy, but the... Actual yeah, definition is psychedelic assisted psych- therapy yeah. is oh, the okay. appropriate yeah, yeah, yeah. name. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, so there, there is there's obviously elements to you know psilocybin that are being used yeah, yeah. in great ways. MDMA, ketamine, you know, and we we see it now most commonly with the CBD oil and the yes, you know course. medicinal and medical cannabis being yeah. sold. Yeah, mm. but we've got no issues with ab- advertising um, Friday night drinks to like come which relieve you, relieve your thing, stress from your yeah. week, which is exactly the same thing in a different form mm. than it's someone exactly that's smoking a joint or shooting up or smoking ice to relieve of whatever it is, is their stress. Like mm, it's a trauma right. for us to have been at work, a small trauma, mm. a very small <laughs> trauma, not nest, not not even close to be compared to a young person and their that's experience right. that they've yeah. had. But the, the, I guess, like cause and effect. But yeah. it's okay for us to go is, home mm, and have a few It's the same wines. thing, right? That's yeah. right. And it's not okay it's like, for them to mm. do something to help themselves. And yeah. it's just so awful isn't it like it's pointless and alcohol's a worse drug anyway mm. like cannabis i think doesn't people are shocked by that though vanessa like the amount of times that that people have asked me oh what's the dirtiest drug or what's the the it's worst alcohol. one and, and it's alcohol and i think people are genuinely shocked by that because like the aussie culture is you know yeah. your mates play footy you go to the footy club on a saturday after the game and you have a few beers that's and right. that's just the that's well, just common sense i don't know if you watch that sean McCallum did that thing on um because he's he's abstinent he's never drunk and he's done a whole thing on alcohol mm. and i didn't want to watch it because i was annoyed because i like alcohol <laughs> <laughs> i didn't want to hear someone bag tell it. me about <laughs> Not how to bad drink. it was. i know how bad it is and i nevertheless like the taste of it and everything mm. but i did watch it i was watching it yesterday i thought oh, this is not that bad but he, he was quite interesting because he used to binge drink and get really violently unwell. Oh, okay. So and I wasn't sure if he was sober, yeah, sober or now. abstinent, like I'd never drunk. No, no, no. Because I was like, can we need to make a whatever about something? But yeah, well, so, okay, so he's sober. It was an Makes interesting sense. thing because he was always drinking to excess. And mm. he said he, um, he drank, not because he liked the taste of it, but he liked to be blotted because that's how we many people did drink in in my generation Mm. it was absolutely a thing that you didn't just have a few drinks but your ambition was to wipe yourself out and it still happens but and strangely enough in australia it's upheld as a fantastic thing to be um, unconscious which 
Well, I think the perfect example at the moment is Dan Andrews. Get on the bees. Yeah, like, that's, that's yeah. It's Well, he said in a presser about COVID coming out of stage four, someone said, am I correct in saying that we can get on the bees? And he's like, yeah, you can get on the beers, but I'll probably be having something a little higher shelf than that or something well, like that. And now he it's... first said, this is not a time to go out and get on the, the beers. beers. Yeah. And then so... But now it's become this big thing. He's got his own remix song that's, that's like, right. get Someone on the beers. Said, Someone's well, got their Christmas yeah. lights with a soundtrack to it. But sorry, oh, that's nice. Going. And that's our... Yeah. It is a very um, Aussie culture sort of thing to do. But then um, again, so is it in but, France where people... Always drank red wine, and the the adage was that it was good for heart disease and mm. that sort of mm. stuff. But they did a thirty year study in France, and they found <laughs> that people develop cancer. So it actually increases the inflammatory damage in your gut mm. and increases the likelihood of cancer in your gut, but also in your other organs. And apparently, it's far worse for women because we've got more fat stores in our body, mm. so we actually store more of it. And it lasts longer and does more damage. Right. So it's so totally sad because I love it. Mm. And, you know, I could drink all the time, but I have to not do it. You have to do things sometimes. Well, sometimes. I've been abstinent for two weeks because I've been sick and I oh. couldn't drink it because I was on antibiotics. Oh, not the antibiotics. Sorry, yes. I cut you off, Sean McCarlow. Yeah, so no, no, um, it was just that it was quite interesting and he wasn't judgmental. But yeah. because he doesn't drink, he was investigating what it meant for other people and everything. Mm. And it was all these same sort of things that we have, mm. that we're so accepting of it, despite the fact that it makes people violent and aggressive. Mm. And it causes, it's, it's probably indicated in road deaths, like there's a huge percentage of yeah. all sorts of accidents where alcohol's implicated. Mm. And assaults and everything. Well, it's like the statistics for drink driving. Mm. The 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 highest part of drink driving statistics is actually people getting up the next day and going to work. Yeah, because they still think being they're fine. Before, and they don't realise mm. how long it stays in their bloodstream. So, yeah, yeah. But I mean, at least people who have cannabis, they don't go out and punch everyone up, do they? Imagine a well, nightclub, everyone just smoking jaws. You just everyone. Just like, it's so funny that you say this, right? Because mm. I had thought about this as you were talking, and I was like, "Oh, this isn't going to fit in the conversation." And then you said what you said. I went to Canada, yeah. um, and Canada now is like full legal. You yeah. go for gold, but mm. when I was there, smoking cannabis was legal in like certain areas. As, well, States. establishments mm. like oh, as well. Okay. Like there was like pretty much they were like bars, right? Mm. So I went. But you'd with, have a license probably. Yeah. For it, isn't right. It? And they had rules, like, you couldn't smoke tobacco because in North America, like, most joints, like, people were, like, they don't have, uh, like, tobacco. Like, mm. if you roll a joint, it's just, kind of, like, it's just yeah. marijuana. Yeah. But you can't smoke tobacco. You can't um, buy, swap, or sell, like, cannabis, marijuana, mm. like, in the establishment. And you go there, right? Mm. And you can hire, like, all different, like, apparatus to smoke. Mm. Like, you can hire mm. a bong. You can hire a vaporizer. Mm. You can buy papers, filters, like, all this mm. kind of stuff. They had um, like hip hop music and stuff on when you got in there, mm. and uh, later in the night there was a stand up comic. Mm. But I looked around because it was such a foreign concept to me that you would go to and like essentially a, a bar, oh, and they had all like food there, but mm. it was all munchies and stuff, right? Yeah. So, like chips and lollies and snacks. <laughs> I looked around and I, I looked. There's a table to the left of me, five or six girls, all like on a night out, just mm. like you know Chill they had that. yeah, just all smoking. Look over, there's a few, few of the like, few of the lads like having a smoke and stuff, talking, and I was like, thinking about it then, and then <clears throat> thinking about it just now, like how much 
I guess, like better that would yeah. be mm. as a concept. And then a whole heap of people drinking. Yeah, getting yes. being yeah, violent. Drinking yeah. and like, but also like the consequences the next day. Like, I don't, you know, we've all heard it and probably said it like, oh, how was your weekend? Oh, I got so smashed. Like, spent half a day on Sunday on the couch. Totally yeah. cool, but like, yeah. not ideal, right? Yeah. But just thinking about like, if you went and smoked or like on Saturday night or like, yeah did that like you'd have a way better time because you get high and you laugh and everything's like really funny and you have a really good time like you're not going to have a hangover there's, you're probably not going to have it's well i guess it's less likely that there's going to be like road incidents yeah, yeah. violent incidents mm. like i'm just thinking about all the positives right it's because really i think funny. Yeah. they should actually make it legal and have a blood level like yeah, yeah, yeah like a BAC that they level. Level. Yeah. that's right so if you're smoking under you know that level yeah mm. and which is considered not to impair your coordination and yeah. stuff like that, Yeah. then, you know. I think the best example, so a girlfriend of mine um, I went to uni with, she actually is living in Canada at the moment. When she moved over, she moved over there to work um, just pre-COVID, the poor thing. But um, one of the first gigs that she got on her working visa was working in like a transitional housing um, apartment building. Yeah. Um, and the level she worked on was um, parolees, recently um, released prisoners. And it was just a transition accommodation where they'd mm. live until they got on their got feet, got work, or whatever yeah. else. And so the biggest thing for her was I was getting used to um, going into the work and all the um, prisoners were smoking joints. And she'd be mm. like, the what? fuck are you doing? You're on parole. And like, in her head, have this mini freak out because yeah. back home when she was, you know, a parole they'd officer, be they'd be arrested and sent back to prison because it's a break to their parole, right? And so she was walking around. It took her, I reckon, two weeks to get used to the fact that it's okay that they're allowed to be high. They just come. And she said, I actually fucking love it because they come home from work, they have a joint, they get they're the munchies, they go to fucking their rooms, they watch TV and they do nothing. And it's yeah. the easiest night for me. Yeah. Whereas if that was you know, back home, they might knock off work, they'll have 10 beers with their boys yeah, and, and then they'll all be aggressive and, at home. And then it becomes this vicious yeah. cycle, you know, and, and yeah. um, she's like, honestly, they just come home. They were worried during COVID that if the dispensaries ran out of weed, yeah. what they what would they do. Were do. And she was like, fuck, then I will have to remember how to do, you know, de-escalation yeah, and all that yeah, sort of stuff because yeah. they're not all just going to be lounging out in the yeah. rec areas, watching telly, eating food and then going to bed. It'll be interesting to see what happens, isn't it? Yeah. They- does become legal here. But I think it'll be really interesting to see the studies and stuff that it can open up. I think that's yeah. the really interesting part. But the part. thing is that you just don't trust anyone. I mean, I'm a slight, slightly a conspiracy theorist because I think that mm. ultimately there's so much political investment in not having it and that they can fund what they want, isn't it? And, like, yeah. you don't know who's, like... It, Who's just, funding I'm, what I'm research for what results? Do you know what I yeah. mean? Like, because what's their intention, and is it really to help people, or mm. is it money? Because it always turns it's out always to be money. money. Yeah. And then you think, well, there's a lot of science and research that's been corrupted by mm. greed and who knows what. You see what they've done with opioids and marketed that. You just yeah. wonder. Is mm. it going to be a proper trial? Well, authentic, is, yeah. yeah. Is it really going to be focused on the benefit to human beings mm. and, um, you know, alleviating suffering, that sort of thing? Because yeah. if, if they really cared, they could have done this years ago. Years ago, right. Well, they were doing and, it years ago. You think but, it... I mean, tested it. It, it could be oh, so, yeah. Like when I started nursing in, and I worked in oncology, 
We couldn't give people cannabis, but we permitted them to bring cannabis in and they'd smoke joints for pain relief and mm. stuff. And that was back to they could have done that. That was 40 years ago. Yeah. They could have done that years ago. Mm. But there's not been any political interest. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's Isn't it? And it. it's because of the ultra-conservatives and they don't want anything. Mm. Yeah. I don't think. I don't know what their motivation is because I can't understand it, but I don't. There's a lot of suffering that could have been alleviated. Mm. Going back to the home-based withdrawal, I'm mm. curious, is there any evidence or like even anecdotal stuff from your experience that uh, compared to uh, like a detox withdrawal and the success for that young person or adult sort of moving forward? Like is there is a home-based withdrawal more successful? I think like outsider's point of view, if I could say like a home-based withdrawal makes a lot of sense to me because a detox withdrawal is in an unusual environment, right? It's in a very specific environment that would be easy for or easier for someone to do a detox because they're out of their environment that may I have all those triggers and things. But... definitely be home-based. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I in think your so. experience, if you sort of, could, I don't know, if you could well, say that if you've had a young person that's done a detox in a... I think in principle, if you think about it, it's not really going to work being abstinent for two weeks. It works mm-hmm. for our clients who are homeless and who just need a bit of comfort. And oh, yeah, of course, so because that's it's why we... A detox, I don't know what you... Like a detox stay as opposed to a home-based withdrawal stay, they're not using a, I don't know what you call it, like a step-down method in terms of their use. It's no, it's complete. called turkey. Yeah. yeah. Do they give them like Valium and stuff to... Well, no, we I don't. don't so this doesn't really believe in benzo use because of the propensity for just dependence, but mm. they do use a withdrawal scale. So, yes, depending on what they're using. Oh, okay. Mm. Like a, if they were on benzos or alcohol, and certainly we did in the past, they'd do a withdrawal scale and then they would be dosed according to the symptoms because mm. yeah. sometimes people over report and everything <laughs> so given that i think that it's not only young people the adult sector they're highly likely to over report and mm. there'd be lots of people with mental health and borderline type things so they yeah. so they do a you know assessment they take their pulse and their blood pressure and everything and make sure that you know there was need for it mm. yeah so Obviously, you don't want people to be uncomfortable mm. because that's not going to make it successful. You don't want them to suffer and sweating and all of those ones. And there's like terrible. there's the homeopathic and sort of naturopathic yeah, yeah, yeah. So options they do, as well. They did, but they They're don't. They don't. That. We don't like but, no. as an organisation. But uh, the organ. Sorry, I didn't hear yeah. what you said. Said, so is there an oil for that? Mate, there's fucking oil for everything. <laughs> I think there is. <laughs> there yes. is. But Central they. Oil. But they. Test stop doing it because there's no clinic there's no research on it so. Mm. okay so we don't do like medi- we don't do vitamins like we used to we used to do that all the time mm. because we had a naturopath who was a nurse mm-hmm. but says we'll have a naturopath in who is independent prescribing to do an assessment they mm. still do that yeah which but is like don't... complementary medicine yeah that's yeah. right but i think that there are still some medications that um, like so, if someone was drinking a lot of alcohol, it was worthwhile giving them a multivitamin, a B vitamin, because B vitamins are depleted. Mm. So there are general things that that's perfectly fine in a, you know, in the sort of conservative medical setting. Those mm. are treatments that even in a hospital you would get. Because mm. so, there's also thing as a medical withdrawal. Do you know what that is? Nope. 
so medical with and Vanessa will probably explain this better than me because you've explained it to me what it is anyway but someone that might be drinking say alcohol to such an excessive amount that their withdrawal could be so dangerous yeah. that they need to be medically monitored 24 that's right. 7 so that's the same as the ghb the benzo the yeah. alcohol yeah so yeah. they would go into um like for us it's um cicada, not cicada it's seeds so it's southern health monash health has mm. a medical detox which is on Cahillon street and they would take people who are using drugs to that extreme who might have um you know some other comorbidity as well so mm. someone who's an epileptic yeah um, someone who had schizophrenia or other psychiatric conditions that might be um, affected by withdrawing mm. so they would probably go into the medical mm. unit yeah yeah and if you had a baby and stuff like there's probably times where you know that it would be better so i would think like Monash has the ADAPT clinic, which is for pregnant women, and it's sort of like a more supervised um, antenatal service. Mm. Um, but if someone was really doing risky stuff, they'd probably put them into hospital. Yeah. Yeah, and monitor them. Mm. Yeah, just because they don't want them to have any adverse events. Yeah. I remember I, I talked about this. It was like maybe the first podcast we did, but when I, I worked. Yeah. <laughs> I worked for, I wasn't a police officer, but I worked for the police in police custody, which by the way, if you like, tell you who's a brutal nurse, is the nurses that do police custody. Like you have to be like dying and they'll give you like a Valium or something like that. Like as in, as in with your withdrawal, cause you're right. in custody. They're so like, they're probably just so used to it now. They were lovely people, but tell you what, you had to be struggling for them to give you something. Oh, but, that's, um, bit, that's a bit sad though. Well, mm. you do the crime, you do the time, you know? <laughs> Oh. <laughs> well, nah, that's I'm really joking. not the thing, isn't I'm it? Joking. Oh, I'm joking. I would be upset with. No, no, I'm yeah. I'm having a bit of a joke, but okay. they they just their tolerance for people's shit is very low low because they are constantly dealing with people in custody. So, and in the first two weeks of them being in custody, so I think mm. they're just like they just start with really firm boundaries, and yeah. then once you get to the prisons, everything opens up, and then they it's fucking want to give you everything, and yeah, so it's yeah. fine. But my point is that there was um, a lot of people in the area that I worked in. Oh, not a lot of people. There's a few people that were known for being alcoholics and yeah. would often come to the attention of the police. But what was really cool is, and these are people that were like drinking metho, like mm. to the oh, point cool of, things. yeah, mm. yeah. Which yeah. is something I learned too. Like um, I was like, metho, like what? And they were like, yeah, the alcohol content is so high that they might just mix like some orange juice or cordial in with it just to take the edge off and i was blown away i couldn't i didn't realize that was a thing right Mm. but there was a big sign like in the watch house which is like where all the police sit and answer the phone use the computer and stuff at the front of the building there's a big sign on the door that says that that highlights some of these people in the local area and it says do not remove alcohol from these people because of the risks right but it's just stuff that I think like as a new police officer or a member of the community or mm. like, yeah, you just, you don't know it until you learn it that you, you wouldn't necessarily know the side effects of someone that ha- doesn't yeah. have access to alcohol. Um, and I think that, that was great. It was a really cool thing. The sad thing about cool. the justice mm. system, which I think that it's not interested in health. It's about justice. Mm. And even like my daughter's a policewoman, like that's not their principal thing which is just so unfortunate because everybody is a health person. Like, everybody's got a health thing. Mm. Mm. It's not about putting them in and two days later asking what's 
the thing. Yeah. It's about putting someone in and asking immediately, are you a diabetic? Are you this? Are you that? Yeah. Because there would be any number of diabetics who must have. So some of the deaths in custody yeah. are obviously related to not asking the questions in time. Yeah. And that is a travesty, mm. in my opinion. Mm. Yeah. Because or avoidable. if we're holding people, there's no reason why we can't have a medical person or a nurse at every police station to see everybody yeah. who's in a cell. Yeah. That just should be the baseline. Mm. And of course, I understand it's not the brief of the police, but as a community, it's something we should Yeah, do. absolutely. And I can say, like, in my experience working for that police station, yeah. uh, they were awesome at that. Like, they, they had really good protocols around bringing prisoners in That's directly from the community. Yeah even from station to station, yeah, yeah. Um, even to the point where like they would avoid taking people in as drunk. They would look to take yeah, them yeah. home Well, first. that's what like, my so daughter says. They would go is... to hospitals. They'll take them more likely to take them to hospitals. Yeah, so that was really good. That's good because yeah. it used to be, oh, we'll chuck them in the drunk tank for well, a that's couple right. of hours and dry them out. They just put them in the cells out. to dry out, isn't yeah. it? And then yeah. the poor things are going through the DTs mm. yeah. and off their chops. Mm. Yeah, and that was I guess that was a pretty cool thing that it showed that they're – um, for that, and I, you know, I stress that that it was that police station because I can't can't speak to any other areas and stuff. Yeah. But they had a, a real kind of like uh, understanding about who's in their community, yeah. Like, and, that, and I thought that was really cool. Like there yeah. was really like they would have briefings, uh, you know, whatever it was every week or whatever. And there was a section of that briefing that was like super community yeah, minded, yeah, like yeah. whether mm. it was we got these people to move to the area and they're causing problems, yeah, yeah, or. Yeah, yeah. As you know, we've got, you know, these people are often are always drinking yeah, or, yeah. You know, or whatever so it is. Or so-and-so just been released from yeah. hospital, keep yeah. an eye out. So it was really good right. in that respect. So. That's good. Mm. That's what you want. Yeah. That's hopeful. Something in a well-functioning. It's hopeful. Yes. Yeah. It is. It's not what you hear all the time, is it? No. It isn't. Before we finish up, Vanessa, we always like to spring a final question on our guests. Um, if you had, it's not a hard one. Okay. If you had any words of wisdom or pieces of advice for either new workers or maybe um, people needing to feel refreshed in their role or maybe changing careers, what would your pieces of advice be for people? Oh, this is a very <laughs> difficult question. I don't. I think. I think that it's important to really. Um, like you said, not to be pers like not take things personally and mm. sort of be objective. And I also think that if you can relate to people, um, and actually really try and meet them where they're at, mm. um, put away your thoughts about it, like you said before. Yeah. And so sometimes when I'm getting really um, a bit jaded with work, I always think I need to go out and see clients again because yeah. as soon as I go and see them and I start talking to people I just love it and I think oh no that's what I was meant to do yeah and I feel that that's where the real I don't know activity happens mm. where the real the real connections are made because you have suspended your judgment yeah. and you're sitting there in a space listening to someone's story mm. and really taking it in and feeling their pain and then from that place you can suggest useful things mm. so I think the worst times for me is when I'm not doing actual client work mm. and I get annoyed by other things mm. but when I'm doing the client work I really cheer up and I feel like mm. I love them and I like you know listening to them and 
um, listening to their story. So I think that always, whatever work you do, you have to think of the service and yep. the fact that you're providing a service and make someone feel that, that they are your focus. That's mm. what I always said to my son, because he's a salesperson. If you want to be successful, you've got to listen to the customer. You've mm. got to pay attention to them so that you can meet them. And he always said that to me, that he, people would not even call the office, they would call him directly. Yeah. Because they knew that he would pay them that attention. Mm. So I think it's about being attentive, mm. isn't it? And engaged mm. and really listening to what someone's telling you rather than thinking about what you think. Yeah. Well, listening to hear somebody rather than listening to respond. Well, yeah, just being paying attention, isn't it? Yeah. Like pay attention. Absolutely. Yeah, that's all I think. For it's our work, it's working with the client, isn't it? That's mm. yeah. the big thrill. Yeah. Oh, you're right. I even think coming at it, everyone's like, oh, did COVID suck working from home? I'm like, no. It was all right. But I missed seeing, like, the, oh, the best part of my the, role that I love is yeah. working with young people. Oh, and I didn't get to do that. So that's isn't fucked, it? But... It's not the same on the phone. No, no, no way. You need to look at them and they need to look at you. Yeah. So Because you can't pay attention on the phone in the same way as human beings, like, connecting in yeah. person and yeah. actually really demonstrating your connection, like, mm. your attention. Mm. No, I think it's lovely to be seeing them again too. Yeah. Absolutely. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Mm. I hope we can continue That's with no it. cases, you know. Fingers crossed. Yeah. yeah. Thanks heaps for joining oh, us. It was really you. cool. Yeah, Thanks. it's so good to learn it's a little bit kind. more about the role and, and your history and stuff too leading up to it. So, yeah. Very kind Thanks. of you to ask. It's lovely. <laughs> Thank Thanks, you. Vanessa. Thanks for listening to another episode of Knowledge on Tick. Please like and share the podcast, invite your friends and colleagues into the group and get in touch if there are any guest speakers you'd like to hear from or any topics you'd like covered. Take care and enjoy your week.